0: Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hey Jim, nice to see you again. We've had a lot of reaction to our most recent podcast of a few days ago, where we talked about the property issue in Ireland and in in many countries, the housing shortage, the housing crisis, as it's often called. And I just wanted to read out one of the many responses that we've got, which I think is very interesting. And I think it's very important to explore some of the issues, albeit briefly, that this guy that wrote to us raised in email. It's on our website. Anybody can read it. So he says, hi, Jim and Chris, very useful overview of the housing market issues. If the current crisis provokes more short-sighted meddling in the market, it'll just fear further off course. As someone who's been involved in property development since the 80s, I'd really like the conversation to get more balanced. I think, Jim, that just really echoes the remarks that we were making about A, complexity, and B, the, the way in which it is a very imbalanced policy discussion. This guy goes on. We don't hear much about the role of indigenous property developers and how they take on acquisition, financing, planning, construction costs, and market risks in order to deliver a much-needed product. Now, I thought that was a very important point to make, which is that, in many ways, property developers have acquired the reputation of bankers, or a similar one anyway, in that they're, they're, they're almost pariahs. And perhaps for some good reasons, we know that they did all sorts of strange things during the property crisis. But the simple fact is, a bit like bankers, we need property developers and we need them to behave properly and we need them to do their thing. Otherwise, that we don't have an economy if we don't have bankers and we don't have a construction sector if we don't have property developers. So he goes on. Since the crash, the playing field is tilted heavily in favor of investment funds with local developers, a distinct disadvantage in terms of tax regime and financing. Add to this the fact that the tax take is a significant chunk of all housing sales prices, while populist voices keep insisting that housing can be delivered at ridiculously low prices and you perpetuate the image of the greedy speculative developer. It should be borne in mind that there's a very real risk associated with apartment development versus suburban semi-detached development, as an entire multi-unit block must be completely finished in order to close the sale of just one dwelling. The absence of a proper financing model over preceding decades has pushed many developers to opt for development of semi-detached units only in budget areas so that the output can respond to a variable market and limit their funding exposure. If you provide reasonable financing for local developers and let them operate in a non-punitive tax regime, you'll definitely see the delivery of housing for sale to the public. Treat them like a fundamentally useful and worthy part of the solution, in other words. And the email concludes... I thought he made lots of very interesting and very important points there, Jim. So what did you think?
1: Yeah, I have to say um, it's it's reflecting, he is reflecting many of the views I have on the property market. I mean, there is a recognition, and I think we discussed this last week, that the whole housing situation is a multifaceted problem. You cannot just identify one part as being problematic. I argued after 2010, 2011, as the National Asset Management Agency was going about its business, that it was demonizing developers. It was treating all developers in exactly the same way um, as pariahs. You know, I, I think as in any facet of life, there are very good developers, there are poor developers and there's pe- people in the middle, you know, so you cannot paint all developers developers with the same brush. I mean, basically developers are essential for the delivery of housing supply. There is no doubt about that. And quell surprise that we're now seeing a massive lack of supply in the market because NAMA basically demonized all developers, treated them all as pariahs and sort of punished them all accordingly. So if you take a developer class basically out of business, how the hell do you expect a housing supply to be delivered? And then, of course, the, the other issue is that the whole financing model for the delivery of housing by domestic developers you know, is fundamentally broken and has been for the last 10 years. And that is why we see the developers of housing basically delivering maybe five or 10 houses in a development at a time, releasing those, raising some finance, then going on and doing the next small block. That reflects the financing model and it reflects this, the precarious financial nature of, you know, what developers are doing at the moment. And as the the person who emailed in said, um, the delivery of apartments is even more complicated because the financial exposure of developers to apartments is significantly greater. And that's why we have seen so many external investment funds coming in and financing the delivery of apartments. And as the system currently stands, external capital is essential for the delivery of apartments, particularly. He he goes on then to talk about the the cost of delivery. I think that was very prescient of him because there was a piece there was a a, a piece of legislation approving the doll last night that was proposed by Sinn Fein. Uh, the government made a total bags of the vote, so the Sinn Fein motion got through the system somehow. But basically. Uh, what that Sinn Fein motion is saying is that the maximum price for the delivery of an affordable house in Dublin is 230,000 and should be significantly lower. If you can show me a developer that can deliver a house for 230,000 in Dublin, I'd love to meet him because to me, the, the, the maths around this make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And particularly in the context of what's been happening, construction material prices over the last six months, timber prices up dramatically, all other input costs up dramatically. And yet they introduced this ridiculous limit of 230,000 on the delivery of affordable housing. It's mad stuff. And it again typifies what we were saying in the podcast last week, and, and what the emailer said there, that the whole debate around housing is totally unbalanced. Um, there's it's 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 racked with political populism and so on and um i do believe that the measures that they introduce that that the government is introducing at the moment some of them do make sense but a lot of make no sense whatsoever so will these measures solve the housing crisis no they won't
0: in my view so we've got a 10 percent tax today on investment buyers of houses and I, I'm tempted to say amused, but it's too serious for laughter by a report in the Irish Times this morning that said that the, what the government is trying to achieve is to exclude a particularly foreign, I would guess, investment funds from buying up housing developments, but is still very keen for them to buy up developments of apartments. Is that right? Is that the right interpretation? Well, the, the interpretation is that the
1: government recognises correctly that without international investment you will not get the delivery of apartments and i said this in the podcast last friday that for the apartment model particularly that external finance was absolutely essential and that if you demonize those international investors you would see the supply of apartments coming on the market grinding to a halt so i think what the government did in relation to exempting apartment development from these restrictions does make sense, but it also demonstrates the nonsense of what's going on here. It's political populism at its worst, in in, in my view. You know, developers, ex, sorry, external investment funds are evil unless we need them to do specific things in the market. Um, I think the government here is talking out of both sides of his mouth, and I think it just demonstrates clearly that, once again, we have a Minister for Housing that is totally out of his depth, in, in my view, and that is being driven by absolutely whatever the political complexion in the doll is at any particular time. So, I think we need to be very, very careful that these sorts of interventions and all of the interventions now Yesterday, they're not all bad. There is some good stuff in there that does make sense in the current circumstances. Um, I think we need to watch out for the law of unintended consequences again, because there's a long history in this country of government meddling in the housing market actually making the situation worse. What they have still failed to address is how you bring more supply onto the market I mean, the measures yesterday were really aimed at the supply that's there, how you're going to target it towards specific elements of the market. But that doesn't take from the point that we are still building way too few houses in this country at the moment. And nothing has been done to address why that is the case. And there are many reasons. Um, The financing model that's in place for indigenous developers um, is totally dysfunctional at the moment, as that emailer said. The government take, out of a house is about 40% in taxation. So before you do anything, you're handing over 40% of the price of a house to government. That is utterly ridiculous as well. And you know you, you need to address these things. You need to get the government to build on state lands, um, ride roughshod through elements of the planning process. Um, and I know that's a pretty controversial thing to say, but I think you said it last week, in the context of the UK at the moment, that that's basically what they're doing. I mean, if you allow serial objectors object to every housing development, well, then you're not going to get the delivery of housing and the problem just gets worse. And there is the level of political hypocrisy here, I think, is quite extraordinary. There is one politician um, in north side of Dublin who's constantly on social media, having a go at government over the failure to deliver housing. And yet... Um, he and his people are objecting to most of the housing developments in his constituency. So there's nutty stuff going on here. And um, to be honest, I don't believe the government has the balls to actually tackle it in a meaningful way. And what we're getting, as I say, is just a knee-jerk reaction to the latest social media frenzy, the latest political populism that's going on in the doll. So um, I'd be Pretty disillusioned about it all, I have to say.
0: Yeah, I can hear that in your voice, Jim.
1: Sorry, could I just make one further point about this housing thing? Housing was the most important issue in the February 2020 election. And believe me, it is going to be the biggest issue in the next election, whenever it's it's happening. And based on the current trajectory, the government is not capable of solving the problem. So that then opens up the way for Sinn Féin to walk into government on the back of failed housing government policy. And I I just don't think government actually gets the political significance of housing. Um, I don't think they really realise that for young people particularly who are swarming over to vote for Sinn Féin, that housing is the key issue that's driving them. It's nothing to do with the historical past of Sinn Féin, anything else. It's to do with the, the fact that young people are now finding it incredibly difficult, expensive to buy a house or to rent a property.
0: I wonder if they are going to take some lessons from what's happened in Britain, which is that the incumbent party, the Tories here, got the electoral benefit of a vaccine bounce, so that once the population has decided that Covid is under control, the, the party that is deemed to have controlled it gets the electoral benefits, and that, that once You guys get your vaccination up to UK and beyond levels, which isn't too far away, actually, that people's attitudes and faith in the government could improve. I would say good luck with that, because for for the reasons that you've just mentioned and for lots of other reasons as well, I think this coalition is handing the next election to Sinn Féin on a plate. And maybe that should be the subject of a a longer podcast going forward, um, a purely Irish political one but as i suggested earlier i'd like to do something completely different now to move away from housing temporarily i suspect and ask a question that was posed the other day by a harvard professor of economics and it's and it is an academic question but very interesting and very relevant to everybody and the question is 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 neoliberalism dead and is there a new paradigm a new economic policy paradigm emerging particularly from the United States. Roderick says that the paradigm of the 40, last 40 years needs an overhaul, and I think we can agree, all agree with that. This paradigm started in 1980 after the post-war paradigm of Keynesianism was deemed to have failed. So for the last 40 years, we've had different labels on it. We've had Washington consensus, market fundamentalism, and neo- neoliberalism, all meaning, I think, pretty much the same thing. The outcome, says Roderick, has been highly financialized, unequal and unstable economies, unequipped for climate change, social inclusion and disruptive technology. I think that's broadly correct. I don't think it's wholly correct. He talks about unstable economies, and I know why he says that. Look at what we're living through at the moment. Look what we lived through in particular during the financial crisis. But any economic historian will tell you that since the Second World War, including the last 40 years, we've had the most remarkably stable economies relative to anything that came before in terms of the data. So just a small caveat there. Roderick pushes and extols and praises a new economics curriculum that's being taught in some universities around the world now. It's called CORE. Rather than the selfish, utility-maximizing stuff of the the traditional textbooks, individuals are deemed in this new paradigm to be pro-social and myopic rather than selfish utility maximizers, and they talk about imperfect competition more than they talk about the competitive model. And they talk about power relationships in economies, and you can see the Marxist tint there. Roderick warns that all of this is great stuff, and economics does need to evolve. But he says that if you expect this to produce a better policy paradigm, or a better framework, or just better policies, you'll probably be disappointed because of the fundamental flaw that was contained in all of the previous paradigms. I mentioned the last 40 years. Before that, we've had mercantilist. If you're an economic historian, you'll know what all of these terms mean. Classical liberal, Keynesian, socio-democratic, auto liberal neoliberal. The fundamental flaw at the heart of all of these policy paradigms, economic theories, is that they were deemed, each one of them, by their proponents to be universal for all time. And Roderick says, this is wrong. And if you think that what's coming out now from this new economics curriculum, from what Biden is doing in the United States as being universal for all time, you will be just as wrong. And he goes on to say that the only question, the only answer that economics can ever provide to any question is that it all depends. Now, I know that will just elicit jokes about two-handed economists and all the rest of it, but it just happens to be true. The key words for economists and policymakers generally should be contingency context and non-universality and that you know that there are times when fiscal policy should expand times when it should contract there are times when you should interfere in markets there are times when you shouldn't and he concludes his piece by saying our goal should not be to create the next ossified orthodoxy but to learn how to adjust our policies and institutions to change circumstances and I think that that is absolutely on the money. It reveals something that I think a lot of us have thought for some time, but I'm not sure how well equipped the economics profession is 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 able to take this on. I'm reminded that of, of just a contemporary example of what he's talking about. One orthodoxy after the financial crisis, both in Britain and Ireland, was um, austerity. And that has now been discredited. And now that we have this anti-austerity, Joe Biden in particular, I think that that could come to as sticky an end as the previous austerity did, if we deem that what Biden is doing at the moment is to be the right thing for all time, rather than the right thing for just now, and it will need to be changed in future when circumstances change. I know some of that will seem a bit academic, a bit esoteric, but I do think it's incredibly important for thinking about how economic policy in particular develops going forward. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I, I personally, uh, over the last four or five years, uh, why I have no idea, I have really been interested in trying to pursue a PhD in economics. And I've spoken to a number of colleges. And basically, if you want to do a PhD in economics in this country, and um, perhaps it's the same elsewhere, I'm not sure, but it's a PhD in maths they're looking for. Um, if something cannot be proven with very, very sophisticated mathematical equations, well, then it's not worthy of a PhD thesis. So that, I think, um, is a real indication of where economics has gone in recent years. Um, It's been taken over by um, mathematical geniuses rather than people who understand what economics really is all about. And at the end of the day, um, anybody who describes economic as a science needs to be careful uh, it's probably a science, but it is not a physical science. It's not like chemistry, where you put two compounds into a test tube and you get a certain result. It's a social science. It's driven by human behavior. It is much—it's much more akin to psychology um, rather than to you know one of the physical sciences. Um, and I, and I think a lot of people who have been driving the orthodoxy of the last forty years certainly don't get that point. And, you know, as a consequence, we seem to have economic policy being driven by mathematical models rather than by, you know, social behaviour, people's behaviour. And we are now seeing another, um, I think, pretty dramatic turnaround from that situation. Um, And COVID obviously brought that on in leaps and bounds. Uh, There's now a strong recognition of the need for government intervention. There's a strong recognition Um, that when you get market failure, the government needs to come in. Uh, We've seen it in the Irish housing market yesterday. So it definitely is uh, the credo at the moment that a lot of government intervention. And um, I have no doubt, um, as you suggested, that this will run run its course as well. I I suppose the success or failure of economies then will will depend on how governments and policymakers actually respond to changing circumstances, Because I think the most dangerous thing you can do as an individual or as a government or as a policymaker is to get married to a certain orthodoxy and to refuse to countenance anything else. You know, as Keynes said, when the facts change, I change my mind. Um, What do you do, sir? And and so I I think that is where economics has to go. But very definitely um, the whole neoliberal model that has dominated um, for the last 40 years or so is, is, is certainly um, undergoing dramatic alteration at the moment.
0: Yeah, one of the ways in which circumstances or facts, to use that quote, are, are changing rapidly is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast recently, and that's the inflation picture. We've just had some inflation numbers out of the UK, which, like the ones that we had last week out of the States, were much stronger than expected. Inflation has risen all the way to a massive 1.5% year on year. The only reason why that's significant is not the number itself, but the fact that it, it was stronger than expected. It's the highest inflation print for some time. 1.5% isn't anything in and of itself to worry about. It's only if it portends further rises from here. One of the things that struck me about this, and I saw this from Chris Giles' analysis, um, Chris Giles' is economist with the FT, And he said, if it hadn't been for the temporary VAT cut that we've got in the UK at the moment for hospitality businesses, this inflation print would have actually been 3.2%, which would have been the highest in nine years. That's a worrying number. And are we seeing a, a trend, Jim, of inflation numbers coming in higher than expected that will actually, going back to the point that I was just making about paradigms, derail the current paradigm of massive fiscal expansion, zero interest rates, and cause another big rupture, or perhaps even another big crisis? Is inflation the thing that is going to do that? Or is it the case that we are living through just what we thought was going to happen, that as economies start to reopen, we are seeing spinning tyres hit the road, creating a bit of smoke. And that smoke is, in a sense, to push the metaphor, the inflation that we're seeing. Or is the rubber hitting the road in a really fundamental way. The, the smoke doesn't dissipate, but the the vehicle, the economy, is in fact moving far too quickly. I I can't make up my mind at the moment. I am I'm, I'm on record in this podcast as saying as I do think it's temporary. I just do think it's tires hitting the road and a bit of smoke. But we're certainly seeing a lot of smoke, aren't we?
1: Well, we we certainly are. The fact that inflation numbers are coming out much higher than expected maybe tells us something about those people who are building those expectations. So in other words, the economic forecasters, again, who come out with these predictions for inflation um, are just incapable of doing it correctly uh, because it is difficult to do. But what we're seeing at the moment, those significant year-on-year increases in prices, you've got to think about the base effect of that. I mean, this time last year, the COVID pandemic was... You know, starting to become deeply ingrained in the system. We saw commodity prices collapse. We saw oil prices particularly collapse. Um, and we saw lots of other prices fall because of COVID-19. And now we're in a situation a year later where economies are emerging from COVID. Uh, we're getting a strong rebound in economic activity and will continue to do so over the next 12 months, unless the Indian variant or some other variant blows us off course. So um, oil prices are up something like 128% since this time last year. So you're getting these year-on-year base effects that are certainly exaggerating um, the headline rate of inflation. And to date, that is the view that's been taken by central bankers. They're still pretty relaxed about it. But I think that if we've got six months Of persistently higher inflation as we're getting at the moment. Um, Bond markets and indeed equity markets would start to become a lot more nervous. Um, And then the question is will central banks actually panic and react by starting to increase interest rates? And suddenly, will this whole orthodoxy that's there at the moment? Um, about the need for massive expansion in fiscal policy by many people, not everybody. Larry Summers, for example, being an exception to that rule who believes that the US fiscal expansion is totally inappropriate. But it will be interesting to see that a lot of those people like yourself, Chris, who have been pushing this mantra about the need for massive fiscal expansion, how you will feel in six months time if indeed inflation does become deeply ingrained in the system interesting to see
0: thanks for reminding me that i'm definitely one of those who have been pushing this i must confess that i am getting nervous about the inflation consequences of this as we live through the the inflation that we expected but we're also living through a bit more inflation than we expected so i'm still hopeful that it's temporary i'm still expecting it's temporary but as i say i am getting a bit twitchy I want to move the discussion on to some more recent developments in the whole trade and Brexit arena, which, of course, is very close to a lot of people's hearts in Ireland. And we've had trade data out of the UK, which has been somewhat mixed, but, but, and also very pre- preliminary, which suggests that trade with the EU is down. There was an awful print in January. There's been a bit of a bounce back, and there's a lot of dispute about how big a da- bounce back. And nowhere is that dispute greater than in the mind of Lord Frost, who you might know is the chief Brexit person in the UK government. He was the one that brokered the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, the TCA. He's going around the place and telling a story about British trade that is very interesting, because when he talks about the trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, he says it's terrible. The rules and regulations contained in that Trade and Cooperation Agreement are creating all sorts of problems. And we all know what they are. And we know what the consequences of those problems have been on the streets of Northern Ireland. To a different audience, he's saying that the same rules contained in that trade and cooperation agreement are producing frictionless trade between Great Britain and the EU. And everything that's going on in Dover is marvellous now. After a few teething troubles, things have settled down. Now, both things can't be true, can they, Jim?
1: No, they cannot be true, absolutely. Um, There's no reason why Dover should be very smooth and Lauren should be very difficult. Um, And it it does show that I think the political narrative in the UK is just being adjusted to suit circumstances at the moment. Um, and, And I mean, Frost and others have been deeply critical of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and Bob Boris apparently is contemplating using the force majeure argument to try and get it put aside. But um, I I, I believed last year when the Northern Ireland Protocol was signed. Personally, I could not understand it. I could not understand how it could possibly work. Um, and it was put there for reasons of political pragmatism and compromise rather than anything else. There was nothing fundamentally good about it. So there are no surprises. But unfortunately, you know, it has led to a serious change in the political complexion. Um, both in the UK and particularly Northern Ireland, where the new head of the DUP, for example, um, is a guy I'd hate to have an argument with about the shape of the earth and so on. But you can see, you know, Brexit is having serious, serious re- re- negative reverberations to the UK economy, seriously complicating trade. And here in this country, one of the real issues at the moment is the inability to get a flake to put in your cone. So the 99 is no more.
0: That really is serious, Jim, it's bordering on tragedy. Keeping with the, the, the trade theme, Britain is currently in the throes of negotiating a free trade agreement with Australia. As with the fishermen, it seems that ideology is going to trump economic reality. Uh, they've already thrown uh, fisher people under the bus. We know that. And they're about to do it to the farmers. In the, in the interests of getting a tariff-free deal with Australia, result in tariff-free beef, tariff-free lamb, which has huge implications for British agriculture, particularly Scottish beef farmers and Welsh lamb farmers. But they're going to do it anyway, uh, apparently. It, it hasn't been done yet, so we, we must caveat it in, in that way. Ideology trumps uh, economic reality because they're doing this not because they want to flood the market with Australian beef and lamb, but they're, they're teeing it up to do a similar deal with the United States and other countries, but the United States in particular. Another community, the fishermen were were one, the the farmers are another, who were all very pro-Brexit, are finding that their interests are not being catered for, are are not being looked after in in the interests of uh, of just being able to have the headlines of we're doing post-Brexit trade deals. As an ex-farmer, Jim, What would would you think if you were a Scottish beef farmer right now?
1: If I was a Scottish beef farmer, um, I wouldn't be remotely surprised by what the UK government is doing at the moment, because um, they are a tiny pawn in a big game and they're pretty unimportant um, as far as Westminster is concerned. So uh, and, and of course, what you described there about the trade deal with Australia has huge ramifications for Irish food exports as well because um we export f- over 40% of the beef that we export goes to the UK closer to 50% and um that Irish beef is now going to be competing with tariff-free beef from Australia and and indeed the likelihood is that the trade with South America will also open up significantly for the UK and the European Union so the 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 the, the implications of here what's going on um Not good for Irish farming. There's no doubt about that. For, but for British farmers, I think it's another nail in the coffin of that industry in that country. And quite frankly, Boris doesn't give a damn about it. Uh, what we're seeing here now is a much more important symbolic thing from a UK political perspective. Uh, to be able to turn around and say that we are now out there doing trade deals with various countries is um is all Boris wants to be able to do.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite something to just sit sit and observe it, and that, that Brexit even has a resonance with COVID, and we'll conclude with our regular COVID corner. I wrote a piece over the weekend, last weekend, linking Brexit with the Indian variant, which is capturing all of the headlines at everybody's attention here in the UK at the moment, and I'm sure you've noticed this yourself, Jim that they're very worried that the release from lockdown, which has gone so smoothly, is about to be interrupted by this India variant. And questions are being asked about why they didn't close the border to India, why it didn't put India on this so-called red list earlier, when it put adjacent countries, Pakistan and Bangladesh, weeks before they did the India thing. And the reason is that Johnson wanted a trip to India to seal a free trade deal, to get that headline, we're doing post-Brexit trade deals. So despite the numbers in India being much worse than those in Pakistan and Bangladesh, and we've actually had the prominent journalists are jumping up and down saying that the government is actually lying in the House of Commons when they're quoting statistics about why they made that India decision. quite quite extraordinary. But like all of these things, nobody seems to care that much. Lying is is, is something that is part of our body politic here in in the UK that no longer seems to matter. It's been a big change. Um, But the India variant thing is a big concern here in the UK. I wrote a piece, as I say, about it over the weekend. Um, I do think they should have delayed the latest release for at least a week or two so that they could have a look at the data. But the data are very interesting, and, there, you know, whereas it was on Friday, on Saturday of last week, it was extremely worrying. Now it's merely worrying. So it's it's gotten a little bit better. And some of the things that we were concerned about have turned out not to be true. But it's a very early days yet. And this thing, as we know, could could easily take off in a, in a horrible way. So it's one that we're going to have to watch and it's one that you're going to have to watch. If you, if you are going to form this travel bubble with the UK, if this India variant does take off, I suspect you won't be forming a travel bubble with the UK um, very quickly. But here's hoping. we run out of time, Jim, as always. So um, thanks very much and see you next time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to
1: provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.